Hey, well, good morning. I am Brian Shortmeyer, and my wife, who a lot of you like, <laughs> is not with me. She's uh, with our son up in Schenectady. I uh, came down yesterday uh, from there, and uh, she's got help him through a program he's got today. And I'll go back up and get her tomorrow, so she sends her apologies that she can't be here. Um, uh, and so you have to put up with me. <clears throat> we... Um, uh, we're both from New Jersey. I'm from here from Central Jersey. Grew up in Warren. Uh, back before it had fancy homes. And uh, my wife's from South Jersey, outside of Camden. So, you know, she went for Philly's, you know, Philadelphia teams, and I was in New York. And, uh, we met in training with, uh, with, at the time, called New Tribes Mission. Now the name is Ethnos 360. And that was in 1982. And uh, we got to the mission field in 1984. And Calvary started uh, supporting us somewhere around 2000, I think it was. So it's been over uh, close to 22 years now. So uh, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, uh, we are so dependent upon you in every area of our lives. Lord, the... Uh, that's just a great place to be because you have uh, everything available for us, everything that we need, uh, everything we need to live a, a godly life. Lord, one that you continue to, can work in us and work through us. Thank you for this time right now. We ask your blessing upon it. And guide us and use it to your honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now, I'm sure you all know that as believers, we speak a lot of what Christian needs, right? right? And we need to do less of that when we're conversing with non-Christian friends. But when talking with each other, it can be a time saver. You know, just like every profession's got their anagrams or their shortcuts for things, we do as well. Okay? But it's important to understand, make sure we do understand the things we're talking about and not just, well, it's what we say. I've got uh, four verses here with a common topic, okay? so I want you to, we're going to get into that. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Galatians 5, 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Colossians 2, 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So I'm going to be talking a bit about walking by faith. Okay? Now, um, I'm not one that believes in, you know, the uh, current active uh, flashy spiritual gifts. Okay? They're before time. Okay? But those are mostly finished now. But um, walking by faith is not a spiritual gift. Okay? It's something that we are encouraged, in a sense, almost commanded to do. So I started th thinking and asking myself, well, okay, what did the Jews know <laughs> about walking by faith? Was it even understood? Was it taught in their synagogues? 
although it could seem to the casual reader that theirs was a works-based life, that actually isn't true either. Yeah, they had a lot of laws telling them what is they had to do, what not to do, requirements for worship, offerings for sin. Now, the law wasn't ever present part of their lives. At least it could have been, but we know the law never saved them. Not what it was designed for. The law was meant to teach them and us that all men are sinners, women too, and that no one's deeds are good enough to pay to get them into heaven. Well, we know more clearly now that the righteous shall live by faith. You know that's repeated three times in the New Testament. We've got it in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. But where did it start? In the Old Testament. In Habakkuk 2.4, we read that the righteous one will live by his faith. And I thought about that because I try to understand what was happening in the Old Testament by keeping it in context. And, I mean, it's not just, it did all didn't happen in one year. <laughs> you know, it was a long time. Progressive revelation. That's the way God has worked with us throughout history. And it's like, okay, you know this much. Now you're going to know this. Now you're going to know that. Okay. I thought, well, um, yeah, that's in Habakkuk 2.4, but in the Jews' defense, wasn't that at the end of the Old Testament? I mean, way after the time of Moses and David, during the demise and destruction of both the northern and southern kingdoms? Yeah, that's true. But the thing, see, the thing, the words of Habakkuk were never meant to be new teaching, but a reminder of what God had always wanted and which had been demonstrated in the life of Abraham specifically. When God called Abraham to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, what did Abraham do? He obeyed and went. <laughs> he didn't even know where he was going, but he went. Hebrews 11.8. Well, what do we learn from Hebrews? How did he go? By faith. He lived as a stranger in a land that at that time wasn't his. How? By faith. Without understanding why it was necessary, Abraham gave up claim to the life of his only child. Well, his only child of promise. How? By faith. I don't... That's something I have difficulty comprehending. It happened. You know? But Abraham's faith was unbelievable, at least as far as I can see. Hebrews 11 teaches us about faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And some people call it the Hall of Fame of faith. But I wonder, is it really a Hall of Fame or really basic classroom instruction on one of the most fundamental principles of the Christian life? Hebrews 11.6 tells us, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Well, why does it say the one who comes to him must believe that he exists? Well, because we don't see him. <laughs> we don't hear him. We've got to believe in something we can't see or hear. And quite honestly, that's a stumbling block for many people today. And it was a stumbling block 
for many Jews back then. So I think, well, what was the thing that caused all of Judea to sit up and take notice of Jesus when he started his ministry? Well, it was the miracles that accompanied the message he brought. The miracles of Jesus were done as a verification of the message he brought. Now, though there were exceptions, the miracles were primarily done for the benefit of who? The Jews. You've got to remember that. Jesus preached the gospel to those around himself in order to authenticate the message he told people, John 5.36. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. What he was doing, which included all those miracles, testified that he was sent by Jehovah, by God the Father. Did the Jews catch the connection that the miracles authenticated the claim of him being the Son of God? Interesting time there in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, so they thought, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because they said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. God knows and knew Jews needed miracles. Jesus came and did those. And that was enough, even though the Jews didn't understand And I look at him thinking, I wouldn't have understood either at the time. I know I wouldn't have. But the miracles can only be done by someone who was sent by the Father. So if they couldn't believe in Jesus just by faith, then they should believe because of what they could see and hear. Jesus was saying, believe the miracles. Now, this wasn't the only time Jesus said this. John 14.10 He said, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing the work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. You see, the miracles were for a specific purpose. 
Jesus himself pointed us to the value of not relying on what we can see and hear and touch, though there was a specific time for that. Because later, in returning to the book of John, this is time in chapter 20, starting in verse 26. This is later on in the ministry. A week later, his disciples were in the house again after the resurrection, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, I can imagine him just looking over the group and going, he said, his eyes zeroed in and said directly to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's us. <laughs> that was for all those that were going to come later. Now, did miracles stop then? No, not yet. After the resurrection, many miracles were done through the apostles. The initial ones were to the Jews, but then many were also done among the Gentiles. Was that to convince the Gentiles of the gospel? Or was that to convince the Jewish believers that Gentiles could also be saved? That's my opinion. Which was a thought so distasteful to the Jews that it wouldn't have been seriously contemplated without signs from heaven. Okay? As you go through the New Testament, you'll see the miracles that were to the Gentiles, but they don't zero in on them. Those are to the, actually to the Jews to convince them, yes, this is what God is doing. When Peter preached the word of God to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, he was taken to task, right, by the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The Jewish believers were demanding an explanation as to why Peter would go into the house of a, a Gentile and <gasps> eat with him. <laughs> so Peter explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. Acts eleven fifteen. Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, being the Jews, the saved Jews in Jerusalem, they had no further objections. And praise God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So who was the miracle for? It was for the Jews. Peter's defense was a retelling of the vision God gave that led him to Cornelius and then testifying to the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles. 
And only then did the Jewish believers back off and believe. Jews demand signs. Jews always have. That's not my opinion. That's 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. See, biblically, signs are for the people of Israel and God's dealing with them. Because Jews ask for signs. 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. You also see it in Matthew 12 and John 4. Today, signs are not generally part of God's dealing with the church. To the church, the Lord promised, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, that is in my Father's house, where I go and prepare a place for you, there you may be also. Signs do not last. Signs, like addictions, require more and more, bigger and bigger. Well, that's what you did for us last time. What are you going to do this time? That's a sign. Jesus often criticized those who asked for signs, and Jesus remarked positively about those who believed without any signs. It's interesting. Jesus prays biggest praise for those who believed without signs were for Gentiles. See, the signs of the Old Testament and the signs of the New Testament were for a season. And signs are not necessary for believers today. I mean, you have probably, maybe you've said it yourself at some time in your life, and you've probably heard it from others, well, if God would only give me a sign. (laughs) And that's not how God works. The signs, um, Paul explained to the Corinthians that, quote, God's people and members of God's household were built on the foundation of the signs? No. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Jesus' ministry on earth gave way to the ministry of the apostles and prophets which is now in the hands of evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So every single Christian has the same opportunity to walk in the Spirit. If you don't like that terminology, because you're, that's a little too Pentecostal for me, okay? Walk in faith, it's the same thing. Abide in Christ, same thing. Different words explaining The same very thing. Walking under the control of the Holy Spirit is not a positional thing secured for us at the moment of salvation. Walking by faith is a moment-by-moment thing, which is what rewards will be based on. It won't be based on who had the shiniest gifts, such as healing or teaching or evangelism, why would anyone get credit for something that was given to them? And we're given different gifts. You don't get credit for a gift you have that was given to you. Rewards are based upon what you do 
under the Spirit's control with what you were given. The man who doubled the talents were both given the same reward. The man who earned five did not get a bigger reward than the man who earned two. Both got the same praise from the Lord. Both did all they could with what they were given. I was given this. I doubled it. I doubled it. I didn't hide it away. So, how do we walk by faith? It's sad to me that I see so many Christians that believe the right theology and go to church and go to Bible studies, but don't know what it is to walk under the control of the Holy Spirit, to abide in Christ, to walk by faith. Well, we do know that we have a great advantage over all the Old Testament saints in that every believer, every single believer in the church age is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. And again, from 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing, absolutely guaranteeing what is to come. Now, walking by faith is a tremendous privilege. And I'm going to go back again to Abraham. When it says in Hebrews 11, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because Abraham is not just the father of the Jews. He is our father too. Again, in speaking of Abraham in Romans 4, Paul wrote that Abraham is the father of all who believe. I mean, you all have, I'm sure you've all sung that song, Father Abraham. <laughs> now, in this walk of faith, what about this moment-by-moment moment stuff? Okay. Does that mean we're zombie-like? <laughs> Moving at the control? Well, this is not Michael Jackson. At the Holy Spirit? <laughs> No, no, no. When we trust in him and obey his spirit, he does guide us in this walk of faith. His spirit is faithful to let us know what we should be doing. His spirit is faithful to let us know what we shouldn't be doing. Now, how do I know? I know because God is faithful all the time, even when we aren't. And a lot of it has to do with learning to listen. And then when you hear, obeying. Oh, Abraham. <laughs> That's why he's the father of the faithful. When he heard what God wanted, there was no question. There was no hesitation. He obeyed. Perfect example for how God wants us to live our life. The thing is, so many of us, we might, I mean, not that we hear an audible voice, but it's like, 
All of a sudden, the thought comes to us, oh, look at that person over in the corner, and no one's talking to them. I can almost guarantee you that was probably God talking to you, prompting you to go do something. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure someone else would do that. Yeah, I really need a cup of coffee. <laughs> and what did we just do? We heard and we disobeyed. That's not walking in the Spirit. It's learning to listen and then immediate obedience when you do. And God doesn't just point out what's right and what's wrong. He doesn't just point it out. He then empowers us to do the right thing, such as going to talk to someone who's too shy. And he enables us to not give in to temptation. I'm not sure you probably, I don't know all that's, that's taught here, but you've probably heard the term appropriate, have they? Uh, as Christians, it's there. We just have to appropriate it. Take it for ourselves. It's waiting for us. The power to obey, the power to do what we should do, the power to not do what we shouldn't do, right? It's you just, oh, you do it as you obey. Everything you need is right there. Again, I can guarantee it. Why? Because God's faithful. God is always faithful. He can't be anything but faithful. Mm-hmm. One of the first verses I learned. Uh, I know the guy that was witnessing to me after I got saved. And I was like, uh, Les... Um, I'm having some issues here, temptation. And he said, you know what? Try memorizing 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no, again, this is the version I learned it in. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will, with temptation, also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. I have found that verse so, so true in my life, over and over. Um, uh, I'm 67. Temptations haven't stopped. (laughs) They're there. They will be there until the Lord takes me home. Uh, One of my common thoughts throughout the day is, Jesus, help me. Things came in, I, it, I don't want to dwell on it. It's like, Jesus, help me. Spirit, please, help, you know, I, it's not magic, it's God. And before I know it, it's not that thing is like you say, don't think about the pink elephant in the room. Don't think, and it's like, you know, of course, that's an all you can think about. I, I offer up a quick prayer on a regular basis, Jesus, help me. <laughs> and before I know it, my thoughts are on something else. I'm no longer not trying to think of the thing that I'm thinking of. It's like, I've moved on. God is so faithful. Moment by moment. You can't say, oh, well, I'm getting tired of that. Can I take a break? No. <laughs> I mean, moment by moment, every day, 24-7, 365. And it's always enough. Always enough. Now, in this walk of faith, what about the unusual, the things that aren't part of your 
typical American experience. Well, the thing is, God's faithful there too. And he's looking for others who are willing to be faithful and stand in the gap. Heard that phrase before? You need people willing to stand in the gap? Okay, yell out. What book is that from? Ezekiel. All right, very good. Okay. Ezekiel 22.30, God tells us Ezekiel, quote, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. This is the same God who said in chapter 6, verse 8, in Isaiah, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Again, the, the triune God right there. You know, It's like, for us, who, who can I send? Who will go? I love that picture. Isaiah is there in a vision. God has shown him this. He's seeing, he's seeing God say, who can I send? And Isaiah volunteers. Isaiah answered, I'm sure very timidly, here am I. Send me. Because that's all God needed. That was enough. Because Isaiah didn't have to have all the power and all the eloquent words. It was all going to be God's. He just needed someone who was willing. A lot of people wonder, well, I don't know if I could do that or do this. And I'm waiting for God to make it definite. I'm thinking you're waiting for a sign. <laughs> you know? Does God let people make decisions just based on faith? Absolutely. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. You can make decisions based on faith. Don't, well, people say, well, don't God's people who want to enter into full-time ministry need a, a call? And if I step on anyone's toes here, I'm sorry, but just ignore me because I'm the visitor here. Don't they need a call or some special sign? I don't see that. God gives us gifts to use for the building up of his church and then expects us to use them. Paul wrote to Timothy, this is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. It's a noble thing. Right? Where do you think the desire in that man's heart came from in the first place? It came from God. God put, you know, I've had people say like, well, yeah, I've wondered about doing that. You know what? <laughs> if you've seriously wondered about that and you said, well, maybe, maybe someday, maybe that someday was the wrong thing to say. Maybe that was God speaking to you right then and saying, time to act on faith. Paul didn't say he needed a vision or a miracle. He got them. He never looked for them. I wonder what some people are waiting for when they say they're willing to be a pastor or a missionary, but they're waiting for God to confirm it, or they haven't yet received the call. Um, 
That whole Macedonian call thing, <laughs> it's got more people into trouble or stopped more people from doing what I think God wanted them to do. But it was a specific thing for a specific time. Um, if you've ever felt stirrings in your heart to do something like that, well, could I, if you felt the stirrings in your heart, might not that be just evidence of the leading of the Spirit? Right then. In a very simple situation, without needing a lot of fanfare, because isn't that how God speaks to us? In a simple, still, small voice, just wanting us to hear and obey. So I wonder if many of God's people who say they're willing to be a full-time worker, not that the rest of us aren't doing God's work, right? because we all are called to do that, no matter what we're doing. Right? But I wonder if some of those people aren't really just waiting for a sign. And hopefully I've demolished that thought. <laughs> That's not how God works today. Does he do signs? Yes. Okay. Am I going to define those? No. <laughs> uh, things are different. He can do what he wants when he wants to do it. But it's not the standard way he operates. Obviously, I'm leading towards and talking about full-time missionary service as well. That's one of the things I'm heading towards here. Is it more difficult to be a missionary than it used to be? Hmm. Some parts are harder. Other parts are easier. But then you have to say, well, when did the difficulty of a task ever indicate that God wasn't in it? I mean... We love all those stories in the Old Testament about how God overcame all these unbelievable odds against the Israelites. So difficulty of a task might even indicate God is in it. I'm, I'm not basing a doctrine on that, but I wonder at times. You'll look through the Word of God and you'll see that the difficult tasks are the ones that God often specializes in. Now, we're going to... Uh, do we need to lower the screen? Oh, over there, the TVs. Oh, all right. Uh, screens are so old, I know. <laughs> hey. uh, there's a short video I want to show you here, and it's called, I Couldn't Be a Missionary. <laughs> hey. And uh, I'd like you to pay attention to this couple. Uh, they are, um, uh, had to go through a lot. I had to go through a lot to get to the field, uh, just like any of us. Nothing different, nothing special. In fact, they have some things that made it even harder to get there. But I'd like you to hear their testimony. It was plain before. <laughs> a person doesn't really change when they get on the plane to come to Papua New Guinea. I love seeing more trust in the Lord come from coming here. The motivation grew to more of, God, I, I need you today. Please meet with me today. We had a lot of obstacles to come to the mission field. I think, especially when you step out to do what the Lord has for you, there are going to be obstacles from the enemy. 
and just normal life things that happen. When you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, it's not always going to be easy. In fact, a lot of times it's going to be hard. I do struggle with the fear of flying, and there's a true anxiety there that I just had to take to the Lord whenever I get on an airplane. We had um, a lot of supportive people in our lives, and we had some people that weren't thrilled about us making this decision. Family wanting you to stay. I mean, you have your kids, and so your parents' grandkids are being moved across the, the world. There were a lot of times where we just wondered, when are we ever going to get to go? I had a couple fears. The primary fear was I had a family. We like our conveniences. We had fears with living in a remote place with two young kids. A six-year-old daughter, just afraid for her. Fears that I still deal with. I really struggle with bugs. Our son, he's super young, so what kind of sicknesses is he going to get? Just a bunch of different things that make me go, man, are we really doing this? Are we really moving overseas? The Lord kept just being faithful, showing himself faithful to us and all these obstacles. Those fears were still with me on the plane coming over here, and from day to day, they're they're still there, but you, you just got to trust the Lord with, with every step. I have seen bugs here and they're huge and it's totally okay, like I haven't died. Getting over here, I'm absolutely loving it. There's not been a single thing, you know, made me think, I don't know if we can do this. We're so worried about our kids, you know, are our, our, our kids gonna do well with homesickness, having less stuff, having less toys. And God has been so faithful in just helping them love life here. When people say, I could never do what you are doing, I get really sad. The people who are saying that are looking at themselves. They're looking at their own strengths, their own weaknesses. The focus is on them. He promises in his word that he will use the weak and he will use the foolish because he gets glory for that. You got to trust the Lord. Um, he's the one who commissioned us. He's the one who desires for all nations to be reached. And he uses weak people. And he doesn't send the people that are necessarily the best equipped or the most fearless or courageous or the people that would be the best missionaries, the best at cooking from scratch, the ones that love camping. Maybe sometimes he does, but if you don't fit that mold, it doesn't mean that you're exempt. You you got to look to the Lord for, for his enabling. We're loving life here and we're so grateful for God's faithfulness because I wouldn't rather be doing anything else but this. I am way outside my comfort zone. <laughs> he is my comfort zone, so I want to run to him during that time. Thank you. It was interesting. I was at a, a conference, if it was last week or the week before, and one of the uh, things that I heard the speaker say, I thought, I said that 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> I was like, okay, you know. So I wasn't crazy. Uh, he was with a, had been with a group of people, and they were talking about, you know, the, the greatest hindrances to getting to the mission field. And I guess they had a whiteboard and had listed about 30 different things and was ready to go on, and there was a hand in the back, He's like, like I said, oh, you have something that wasn't up here? Like I said, yeah, yeah. I, the greatest hindrance to get in the mission field, as far as I'm concerned, is Christian parents. I remember saying that, talking about that 15 or more years ago. There used to be a time 
back before we were so modern. You know, it's funny, every age at the time is the most modern that it, <laughs> that it could be, right? There was a time when parents would say, wow, I'd love it if one or two of my five or six kids <laughs> is a pastor or a missionary, would talk about that sort of thing. It's not done anymore, or very seldom. Most Christian parents in America are like, wow, you know, we've worked hard to get where we're at, and I want my kids to have a, a good life and in a place where, you know, they can raise their kids in security and peace and get a good education so then they can, you know, they can get a good job and they're not falling behind. Are those things wrong? But there's very few Christian parents these days that talk about when I really hope one of my kids just goes into full-time service or more for all of them. It's not a goal anymore. And this guy who brought this up at this seminar said, you know, my parents never, ever once challenged me or any of my siblings to consider that. I wanted to make sure we went to a good college and we got a good education and we went into a profession where we were going to get a good salary. I think, how sad. How sad that the Lord has blessed us in this country so much. We have so many resources. And for a, a lot of us, a lot of the church, we hold those for ourselves. He didn't bless us so we could just be blessed. He blessed us to be a blessing to others. There's lots of reasons why not to become a missionary or pastor. But for missionaries, visas aren't easy to get, particularly missionary visas. That era has basically gone. Yes, it's important to make sure kids get a good education. And churches' missions budgets are more stretched than they ever were. Local churches here need faithful members. Elderly parents need help. I know of missionaries who in the last couple of years have quit the field because they were required by the government of that country to get a vaccination to stay in that country of service. It's like, no one's going to tell me what I have to do with my body. I have rights. I'm an American. Even when you're in an overseas country, it's amazing how people say that. The government said, look, you're a foreigner. You want to stay here? You have to have a vaccination. I know missionaries that have quit the field. I guess the price of getting a vaccine was not someone else worth someone else's eternal soul. And maybe that sounds pretty harsh, but I think it's true. Maybe Paul was wrong when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. Verses 19 and 22. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And then there's the clincher, one I hear most commonly, the supposedly noble reason. I could never be a missionary because I won't beg for money. I say, if that's what you think God requires of his servants, 
then you have a really low opinion of God. Yes, God sends us to speak to churches and individuals, but it isn't to beg. It's to share the vision and give God's people the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in the world. We're grateful for the prayers and financial gifts. But my wife and I, we're ambassadors from the royal court of the king of all creation. I don't look to an individual or to churches for support. I appreciate it, but I don't look to them. I look to the Lord. If one church chooses to get not and get involved, that's between them and the Lord. But as for me, I have the same confidence in my God that Mordecai had when he told Queen Esther that if she chose not to participate in God's plan to provide for his people, well, provision would arise from another place, and her opportunity would be lost forever. In this life, following God can cost a lot, including having a comfortable life. And we'll speak more of that during the church service. These two messages kind of go together. I'm sorry. This is more like a sermon than it is a Sunday school, but, you know... That's what you get for being faithful and showing up, you know. <clears throat> if God is pricking your heart to give up all to follow him, just do it. Don't make a pro-con list. Don't look for a rational argument. Don't wait for the right time. The time is now. God himself said that the workers are few and told us to petition God to send more workers into the harvest fields. Matthew 9, 37 and 38. That was two millennia ago. And there's still plenty of work to be done. Lay up treasure for yourself in heaven, not on earth. Living by faith, walking by faith, is not just for missionaries. It's for all of God's people. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We live by faith and not by sight. At least that's how it's designed. Now, there are lessons to learn about walking by faith all throughout Scripture. Many people are comforted by the Psalms of David for good reason. But regarding David's life, personally, I've learned a lot from 1 Samuel and been challenged time and time again by David's refusal to turn against Saul and wait many, many years on God to remove Saul. What a man of faith that was. He had been anointed by God. He had been told he was going to be the next king of Israel. You would think, oh, well, if I'm going to be the king, then let's do it. Shades of Macbeth. <laughs> but no, he waited on God over and over and over. Elijah's stand against the 450 prophets of Baal. Thrilling. The courage and confidence of Daniel and his three friends, who the king renamed as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stirring and encouraging. And the lessons and leadership we learn from Moses and from Nehemiah can redirect entire ministries. We can learn many things from the various lives of people in the Old Testament. But again, the person I keep coming back to that I think that I should try to emulate most is Abraham, the father of the faithful. I relate to Abraham. He made mistakes. <laughs> but he trusted God. 
Remember, he had no word of God in written form. Look at what we've got. (laughs) Nothing written down. That was going to happen later with Moses. Abraham had no written form of the word of God. Sometimes he went years, potentially decades, without hearing from God. God gave a message, and it wasn't the next week, the next month, the next year. There might have been a case in there where he went two decades without hearing again from God. He left his clan, his tribe, his entire support structure. He had no fixed residence, always living on someone else's property. God told him he would have a son, but God let him wait until all natural hope of that happening was gone. As far as having the natural ability to father a son, the writer of Hebrews described Abraham's body as as good as dead. Now, he must have really gotten revitalized because after Hagar, not after uh, Sarah died, he did have more kids with Keturah. So God revitalized that man. But at the time, body good as dead. And then, when that child arrives, begins to grow into man, God asks him to not only give him his son, but to physically sacrifice him himself. And Abraham didn't hesitate. He didn't say, I'm waiting for a bigger sign. I'm waiting for the right time. Let's talk about this, God. Abraham didn't only believe in God's promises for the hereafter. I find this amazing. He reasoned that God can raise the dead. He believed. And because he believed and trusted, he acted. A life of faith. Walking by faith is a wonderful privilege because faith pleases God. Not just faith for salvation, but faith for everyday living. And if necessary, faith for dying. You want to grow in your understanding? You want to mature? Walk by faith? Don't look for signs. Don't pray for miracles to strengthen your own faith. Believe what he's already said and appropriate it. Act in faith and do it. I've got one final video we're going to show you. It's actually being streamed off of Facebook from a couple named David and Emily Reimstad. They stepped out by faith, entered the training with Ethnos 360, become church planners. No previous training before this. They have just, and they've been there about seven weeks, sorry, seven years taking them to get to this point. They just, as of today, but it's 16 hours ahead in Papua New Guinea. So Sunday, message that they were giving today, they just completed week eight, about halfway through the chronological Bible lessons in the tribe that they're in teaching from Genesis to the cross in the Malayali tribe in Papua New Guinea. This is our update from week three, so about five weeks ago on September 18th. I'd like you to hear what they have to say. The 
Malayali people yesterday and we are headed in to week four of teaching tomorrow and so we just wanted to take the time to give you an update, let you know how this last week was and um, what we are expecting for week four in teaching. Just right off the bat, thank you for praying. I know last week we said we were going to be teaching some really big lessons and our biggest uh, concern was just that it would come across clear and the Lord was so gracious because it came across crystal clear mm -hmm. um, to the point that a lot of the Malayali people were in tears because they were finally seeing um, just their stance with God, with the creator of the universe. And so we're super grateful for that. Thank you for praying um, for all of those things. Yeah, guys, I mean, two things that we're super shocked by. One is people are just faithfully coming. Like we, we weren't sure how it was going to go, but... After the couple of weeks, the first three weeks, I mean, people are faithfully coming. They're on time, which is like, it's shocking. Yeah, so it's not PNG. Yeah, it's either. not. It's not Malayali culture. And so we're so so grateful. Your prayers are being answered. We're so 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 grateful. Um, and then second is yeah, like Emily said, the receptiveness towards the message is incredible. Some of these concepts we were. We were wondering if people are going to stand up and be angry or people are going to leave because they're ashamed. But people are not just hearing it, but they're asking critical questions. They're really thinking about the text that they're hearing. And so it has been, it's been an amazing week uh, of teaching. And it feels like we're, we're just getting started. So this next week, uh, week four, mm -hmm. so tomorrow, Monday, we're teaching on... Uh, just what happened after the fall. Adam and Eve received the clothing from the Lord. Uh, they're sent out from the garden. But what we want to capitalize on is just Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise of the Redeemer coming. Uh, so we're going to introduce, this is the man, or this is, there was one who will come who will be able to get us back into God's line. Um, so that's going to be really exciting. Uh, Tuesday is the story of Cain and Abel. Wednesday and Thursday, like you guys know, it's their break. Friday is going to be uh, Noah Part 1. And Saturday is two lessons. It's going to be Noah Part 2 and then the Tower of Babel. So, again, another big week, but some exciting stories just to start having them move along. But they're going to move along now in the story knowing, up oh, the Redeemer's coming. There's a man who will come who will be able to get us out of Satan's line and back into the clan of God. So we're stoked for the people to start hearing those lessons. Yeah, and um, like you know, we have lived here among the Malayali for the last five years. And in this time, we have been learners. We have been learners of their language, learners of their culture. Um, we didn't come in and say, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is the way you need to believe, this is... We have done none of that. I and mean, we haven't been able to, you know, say spiritual conversations. And so I think that is one of the biggest blessings that all of us as a team are talking about. It's like, man, we are having spiritual conversations using God's word, um, talking with the Malayali people. And that is just like, it's just a crazy new season for us that we're really enjoying. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do as a team is that every night after teaching, uh, one family goes to a different a family uh, house here in the village. Um, you can cook food for them or just hang out with them and just talk about the lesson. And so this week I went and visited my friend Numi and just sitting in the house with her, it was one of those aha moments like, mm -hmm. 
we're getting to talk about scripture. I'm asking her, you know, reading these questions like, Numi, what are you thinking about this? You know, and she's telling me, man, at first I read it and I was mad, but then I real, I'm mad about what Adam and Eve had done. But then I realized like that affects me. Like now I am separated from God and I'm sad, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just such a joy to finally, that's who we are, mm-hmm. is to be able to like mm-hmm. communicate God's word with them. Yeah. And it's been a crazy joy because like Emily said, we've, We've kept that to ourselves for years, learning their language and learning their culture and being able to have spiritual conversations is, I mean, just the bread and butter of the work. The lessons are great. Them sitting down and hearing it, phenomenal. But really where the rubber meets the road is us spending time outside of the lessons, having those deep spiritual conversations. Uh, Man, after the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, it was a... A big, big lesson where Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves up, but they couldn't. They were ashamed. And when the Lord came in the coolness of the day, they ran away and hid. For our people, that was huge. Uh, There's a man here in our village that um, is probably one of the most self-righteous guys. He believes that everything he does is good enough. And um, it was the first time I... After the lesson, you know, we sit down and we ask questions with people and just make sure if they heard it correctly. And he was sitting alone and I just went up to him and I sat down and we began to look at, we have these little sheets with uh, questions on it. We, I began to ask him questions and his eyes began to tear up and my eyes began to tear up and he starts weeping and I start weeping and his wife is kind of looking at both of us like, what's wrong? And we embrace each other and he, he just says, for the first time, I see myself clearly, and I have sin. And the sin is not only just filling up my mind, but it's filling up my heart. But then it, my, everything about me is just screwed up now because of sin. And I see myself clearly for the first time. What can I do? And that's a lot of the people are asking themselves that question. We're saying, hey, do you think you can get back into God's clan? Do you think you can... Uh, go back and be friends with God. And a lot of people are just saying no. Um, and then we say, well, what do you think would get you back there? And they say, we don't know. And so a lot of people are just asking that question, man, what can we do to get back to the relationship that Adam and Eve had in the very beginning in the garden? And we just keep on telling them, just wait, wait. We're building a house and we're building it slowly. Uh, but you're about to find out. Not, you know, what can you do? but what God is going to do for all mankind. Yeah, and like David said, that's an illustration we've been using for them as um, we've been going through this. <coughs> they've, uh, she said uh, they've been there, what, uh, I forget how many years that she said they've been there right now. What? Five years. In those five years, they've had five different medical emergencies that they've had to travel back to the United States or to Australia. And... About 10 days ago, more medical issues, and they were told by the doctor in Papua New Guinea, you have to leave. After all the years that they've spent, now they have partners, right? Like, you have to get this treated elsewhere, and I'm not sure if it's for them or one of their children, because they've been kind of vague on some of that. And some of the more current stuff is just them crying. It's like, this is what we came for. But the doctors have said, we can finish the teaching as soon as the resurrection is presented, you know, and the gospel is clear, we have to leave. They're saying, 
we are praying that we can be back to America, we can get the issues taken care of, and we can get back there because these people need to be discipled. Okay? They're just common, ordinary Americans. Okay? No specialized, before they enter the training with Ethnos 360, no specialized training in linguistics. Okay? No specialized training you know, in, uh, in Bible translation. We taught them everything they, they needed to know to get in there. And they're like, now you're going to learn a lot more while you're there, but God will take you through it. All right? I'm just so excited when I hear them, when I see what they're doing. It's like, that is what God has for every one of us, to be about the business of building up the church. The bride, later will you read in the you know, the bride hath made herself ready. What do you think that means? At the end time, when God says the bride hath made herself, who's the bride? It's the church. It's us. How does the bride make herself ready? Well, what job has he given us to do? Okay? To spread the gospel and build up the body of Christ. That's what we're all about. We're supposed to be about. Any questions? <laughs> Okay, um, again, uh, uh, during the service, we're going to be in a different section. We're going to be in Mark, but you'll hear some similar themes, you know, that keep pounding away at the same thing. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for the time we've had right now. Lord, I thank you that you continue to work in us from the moment we're born again until you take us home. We are so grateful to you for your work and, Lord, for the privilege, the privilege of walking by faith knowing that that pleases you. We thank you and we praise you. We just again ask you to, to continue to use these words in our heart and our minds, Lord. Help us to be about the business of building up the church wherever we're at in the world. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.